This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you for tuning in, everybody. We are joined today with Cynthia. Uh, we know from uh, uh, from Twitter. She's now a member of Gender Dysphoria Alliance as well. Uh, and Cynthia has agreed to come on today and discuss her experience with gender dysphoria, kind of causations and whatnot, and then how she's uh, come to deal with it uh, without transitioning, without medicalizing. Um, so uh, thank you very much for being here, Cynthia. And yeah, introduce yourself however you'd like. <laughs> For having me. I don't really know if I could do a better introduction than that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you kind of covered everything. Um, yeah, no, I've had gender dysphoria since I can remember, honestly. So um, I think before I started kindergarten or anything like that, I was already having thoughts about that um, and just dealt with it my whole life in some way and um, realized in my late teens that transition was probably not the way to go for me and then found other ways to deal with it. So that's <laughs> the only thing I could really add to my introduction. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, but even in that, there's a lot there that we can, that we could dive into. I mean, I, mm-hmm. first of all, I'm really curious just what your experience of gender dysphoria was, was like for you and what, you know, how you made sense of it. Um, So early on, it was just, I just knew like you're, you're a kid. And I've I've said this before, but your first introduction to the world and how things work in the world is your family, your parents, you look around at those roles, you look around at those people. And that informs you in early childhood of like how to be a successful adult and what that means. And you start to formulate like ideas about how um, adulthood works. And you know, you, you're a kid, so you have a very limited understanding. And when I looked around at the adults, I knew I was just going to grow up to be one of the men. I did not ever consider that I would grow up to be one of the women. That was just not something that ever came into my mind. So of course, watching men, I, thought like, okay, so I'm going to have to learn how to shave. And so I was pretending to shave in the mirror. And that's when my mom caught me and was like, what are you doing? Like only guys shave. You're not going to grow up to be a guy. You're a woman, like you're going to grow up to be a woman. And it wasn't until then that I ever thought about that or anything. So it really struck me. It was that my first experience with permanence, my first experience with existentialism like what do you mean I'm never gonna be a man I'm never gonna have to like shave my face like what does it mean to be a woman like you like I'm gonna have to have babies and like grow up to be whatever a woman is like what my concept women was at the time and it was like really shocking and so then I just kind of left with that feeling of can I start over can I go back is there a way a way to like undo this is there a way to somehow become a man 
like, what if I died? If I died, would I come back and, and start over as a boy? Like, and yeah, you don't, you don't think that kids think about things like that, but they, they do when they're struck with something that profound as like who they're going, like their life, like their trajectory in life. And yeah, that, that really, really, um, hit me hard. I didn't know what to do with it or who I could talk to about it because my mom thought it was like absurd that I felt that way. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't really know what to do with it. And it was just a lot of like internalized processing. And I knew it was weird now. That was the other thing. I knew it was weird and that I was weird and that I was different and not normal. So that played into it too. So that's more when the dysphoric feelings started. Um, yeah, so. And how old um, were you when you had that, that whole shaving I, experience? I had, been, I had to have been like five or six, like okay. just mm-hmm. really, really young. <clears throat> and it's interesting too, because around that time is when I first like learned about sexuality too, <laughs> because, um, I had always just assumed that my grandmothers were not, I had a great grandmother and a grandmother that lived with us. And I had always assumed that they were a lesbian couple. I did not realize that they were mother and daughter because they didn't really act like mother and daughter. They were not like, you know, loving that way. Like they didn't really hug or like, you know. So you assume they were a couple. Like, <laughs> yeah, I they were like an, an almost older darker. couple. Like, yeah, it's like kind of bickering and just like together-ish. So I was like, okay, they're an older couple. Um, but no, they, they like went everywhere together. If they were going to go to the store, they were together. They watched TV together. They did, you know, like that kind of thing. Like they did activities together, but never, there was never any kind of like nurturing vibe. It was more like a peer kind of a vibe. So I just thought they were together. Like, okay, so they must be married because that's how adults who are married are. And, uh, then my mom again had to tell me, like, no, they're mother and daughter. That's so weird. Women can't get married. <laughs> like, and at the time, legally, she was right. At the time, that wasn't a, a thing that could happen. So, um, yeah, that was, again, something that kind of struck my worldview and my understanding of these adults around me as, like, not a thing. And, um, it turned out later in my childhood, I realized I was attracted to girls. So <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking now, like, I wonder if I was already predisposed to being attracted to females because like my brain already kind of like worked out that that was a possibility, like that that was an okay thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It'd be interesting to do a study on that to see if like kids who think that it, you know, just automatically assume that same-sex couples are, like, viable couples, then, like, Mm. end up becoming same-sex attracted in some way. So I'm bisexual, not just same-sex attracted, but, yeah. Hmm. The story about you shaving um, brings up a memory for me, because I had a similar experience. I must have been so, (laughs) I I can sort of figure out who, what age I was at 
as a kid at different times, depending on which house or what city I was living in, because we moved around a lot when I was little. Okay. So, so it must have been based on the house we were living in. It must have been it must have been grade one. So it was probably about six. And I discovered okay. my dad's old, um, probably nineteenth. I don't know nineteen fifties, maybe nineteen fifties, sixties toy shaving kit so it had all these little little cardboard blades that you would insert into the razors and so I discovered that I don't know where right in an old box or something and Mm -hmm. um I was always in the bathroom practicing my shaving and I mean to (laughs) to my parents credit they never they kind of did watchful waiting without knowing that that's what it was right they they just Mm. it's not that they encouraged me to do that but they didn't actively discouraged me either they kind of gently nudged me in the direction of well could you wear a dress and could you do this but they didn't I don't remember them freaking out when they saw me shaving and stuff and they just kind of so that's that's good yeah Yeah. I think that's that's probably to their to their credit that they had a more more neutral position with it and and didn't Mm -hmm. concern themselves too much with it but it's just interesting that 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 was something you did as well practicing shaving but it seems to be one of these like rituals that we see men do and and pick up on yeah well kids do like express like what they think adulthood is in play like with toy kitchens or pretending to work at a store or you know even with baby dolls and things like that. Oh my gosh, my family got me so many baby dolls. And I was not a baby doll kid. <laughs> they they so desperately wanted me to be a baby doll kid. What kind of activities were you more drawn to or toys or? I was more drawn to things like toy cars or like, you know, having the toy store or like um, doing like a, a kitchen setup or something like that. Um, or I, I liked having my dolls go like on adventures or like my, my action figures and things like go on adventures. Um, I was a pretty active kid. I loved swimming. I loved playing outside, skating, like, yeah. Um, I just kind of liked everything, but I was not the type of kid to sit around and, you know, have that baby doll all the time, <laughs> like feeding it and a lot of other stuff. Like I really didn't, or, or playing dress up. I was never into playing dress up, but my, that might also just be because my grandmother like just dressed me up. Like I was out of the Victorian era, like right down <laughs> to the, the lacy bloomers and the socks and everything. Like as soon as I would come out of the shower, which I was not allowed to bathe by myself until I was about 10 until I started my period, I think. Um, she would powder my whole body put my hair in curlers and perfume me and then put me in all the undergarments and the lacy socks and all the jewelry. I was constantly adorned in gold jewelry. You didn't need any dolls because uh, you were just her doll essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was her doll <laughs> constantly. So I was only not allowed to, to dress up like that if my mom was around and my mom would dress me more casually still very girly if I was at my grandmother's house but um if I was with my mom exclusively I could finally like wear jeans and sneakers and stuff like that you could tell the difference my pictures were like in the dresses I was always like <laughs> like just kind of uncomfortable like very stiff um but then in the pictures where I had like my skates on and my jeans and that kind of thing I was so sassy I was like let's go I'm like <laughs> so 
yeah, I definitely felt more comfortable when I wasn't being my grandmother's doll, essentially. So gender roles heavily enforced at her house, not so much with my mom. But it was your mom who had who had that that knee jerk uh, negative reaction to the yes. shaving thing. How did you kind mm-hmm. of make sense of the like? So you think you probably had you know like like that was kind of like a, a jar, a tr- almost a tr- like semi traumatic uh, experience. Yeah. Like how how would you how did you like after that you realized okay no this isn't normal. How did you kind of make sense of how you felt internally like as you? It, I just thought I was weird. I really did just think I was just a strange like case of a person I just thought like there's something fundamentally like wrong with me because I feel this way and nobody else does Mm -hmm. so it wasn't so much of making sense of it or trying to figure it out it was just knowing that I was different Mm -hmm. um and then as I got a little older like a little bit after that was when I started getting the um the phantom ballast sensations. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's, um, like where I feel it is the like cubic mound. Like, so not like some people would assume it would be the clitoris because everybody has to make the comparison of the clitoris and the penis being essentially the same thing. Um, (laughs) but no, it's like above that. Um, and it does just feel like something there. And it just, it, it does feel like it reacts to stimulus. Like as I got older and like went into puberty and started experiencing like arousal and that sort of thing, like that feeling would get worse and it would get more intense and in adulthood and things like that. When I'd be with like a partner, that feeling was like overwhelming to where if my vagina was stimulated or anything like that, it was really jarring and would like um, take me out of the experience. It almost felt like it was going through a proxy. It was really uncomfortable and strange. And so, yeah, that's something that I've always had. It's a lot less now, but I remember in childhood, like feeling it in class, like in kindergarten and worrying that like, Oh, well, my, my genes are tented. So, that means that it, it must be like actually like messing with my jeans and everybody can see it. And I'd like panic and like pull my, like the crotch of my, my pants straight. Like that was something I was constantly conscious of all through elementary school. And it wasn't until I was like 10 or 11 that I was like, Oh, nobody can like, it's not actually like a thing. Like jeans just tent, like pants just tent naturally at the crotch. Like, Oh, okay. Like it's fine. Everything's fine. But like, yeah that was something I was very paranoid about for years so and another thing like oh it's just me it's a me thing I'm just weird (laughs) well I mean that 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 particular like phantom experience (laughs) isn't something that I personally have experienced but I've definitely heard of others in in like other trans men describing that um, yeah, so, you're, so you're definitely, yeah, you're, so you're definitely not, not alone in that experience, but it doesn't seem to be a universally, like a universal yeah. trans experience. I don't know that there is really a universal, yeah. like, experience, honestly. Like, everyone I've talked to has different things. Some people were comfortable with certain body parts, other people weren't. Um, some people were very, like, you know, oh, I was such a, a Tonka truck kid growing up and I was, you know, 
was always with boys. I could never wear dresses and that kind of thing. And then other people were like, actually, I was very like into dolls and very feminine. And I still had those feelings. I don't, I don't know that there really is. I think it's a, it's a huge misconception, just like being gay. Like everybody was like, oh, you're an effeminate boy. So you're gay or, oh, you're a masculine girl. So you're, you're gay. Like, and then it became understood that there's no definable like personality traits mm-hmm. to being gay. And I don't think that's the case for, for gender dysphoria either. So, yeah. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it, it wasn't until I, I started watching like daytime television, which I probably shouldn't have as a kid, but honestly, had I not seen daytime TV shows where, you know, it was all sensationalized and talk shows were so gaudy and stuff at the time. Um, I would not have understood that things like being gay were normal. I didn't know that from my family. I certainly didn't know that from school or anything like that. So that was my first experience, like seeing other people that were same sex attracted or bisexual or anything. And yeah, it was sensationalized and yeah, they, they played it up and everything, but it made me feel really normal. I was like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. like there are other people that feel that way. It's okay. Like I can breathe. <laughs> it comes to that. And same thing with, um, there were people with gender dysphoria. There was a guy with body integrity disorder that I saw. Um, there were people with eating disorders that had body dysmorphia and, and, um, what's the other word or yeah, body dysmorphia. And, um, yeah, so it was just oh, okay. Other people feel these things. Other people like, um, you know, understand what I'm going through. So I'm I'm not the only weird person. And it was there that I I learned about therapy that I would end up using later in adulthood it was because of like terrible daytime talk shows. So mm-hmm. I forget which ones they were. I think it had to have been like Maury or yeah, oh, like yeah, Ricky okay. Lake or Maury or something. Um, but yeah, it was just like a whole week they were doing on, on that stuff. And I remember catching like the whole week I, I had to watch. I was like, Oh my gosh, all these people are weird. Like me. Like <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> so cause you're yeah. from a pretty conservative family, right? Very. They're Jehovah's witness. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Yep. <laughs> so not even birthdays or Christmas are allowed, really. Right, right. right. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you think that the um, the environment in which you grew up? I mean, not that I'm trying to like point fingers and cast blame, but do you think that the the environment in which you grew up was a factor in um your the development of your gender dysphoria? Like, do you think if if maybe you had seen maybe more diversity of different kinds of women and different kinds of men and different sexualities, that it would have made any difference for you? I don't know that it would have. simply because my great-grandmother was very gender non-conforming she was very um like she'd be outside with a machete and she was like 70 so um you know she wasn't a dress kind of lady she'd be out there like doing yard work and telling men to screw up and that kind of thing like she was very outspoken and she had short hair um so she was very gender non-conforming um, but she, she could still wear a dress and makeup and everything like that for church and not say a word about it. It didn't seem that um, either thing affected her. So it wasn't, I hadn't come to gender clothing or 
gender activities necessarily, like maybe innately a little bit like with the shaving. But again, that was more of like a thing that men did to get rid of facial hair. So I don't know that I necessarily mm. saw it as just a male thing. Like if women were also shaving, I probably would have been like, oh, okay, it's just something people with facial hair do. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just, I hadn't come to gender things necessarily until after that incident with my mom. And then I started looking at everything, like what people wore as clothes, what people mm-hmm. did as activities, um, how they treated each other. My family's Cuban. So gender roles are very enforced socially. Mm-hmm. So as I got older, I started noticing that kind of thing. And um, yeah, just so it, that wasn't an understanding that I feel like I had before that incident. And then afterward, when I started mm-hmm. like looking at things like, oh, okay, there are things like there are rules. So, yeah. And then so once, oh, go on, Aaron. Oh, I was just going to ask if, if you made, like as a child, did you make any attempt to appear more boyish? Like, did you prefer to have short hair or, or wear certain clothes? I've always liked long hair and I've always liked long hair on boys too. So <laughs> that was not um, something I, I attempted. I liked like more masculine clothes, but just because it was like comfortable and I could run around in them and, you know, fall down and not scrape my knees up or get really dirty and it didn't matter. So um, I also liked that nobody could look up my dress when I was <laughs> in, in more masculine clothes because there's this one little boy that my grandma used to babysit and he would just, oh my gosh, he got so creative just trying to look up my dress all the time. I don't even think he understood why, but <laughs> he was just always finding some new way to get me to bend over or something or some way that he could be on the ground picking something up just so he could look up my dress that those really bloomers that I had on all the time. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, like I, he was really little too. So I don't think he really understood what that meant. I, he must've seen it somewhere, but um, yeah, I don't know that he knew what he was looking for, but <laughs> he was very determined to figure out what it was he was supposed to be looking for. <laughs> um but yes I I felt more comfortable in boyish clothes I felt um like I enjoyed boys toys more like um but I I don't I don't think I purposefully made an attempt my mom recently it was just this last time I went to visit her and we passed some batting cages and she was like oh we used to take you there all the time because everything we did with you had to be boy stuff. It was always boy stuff with Cynthia. And I was like, what? I don't remember that. Like you took me to batting cages. Like when? So. Well, it's, it's interesting though, that that's how, how your mom interpreted it. Like if you, you know, like why, why is a batting cage a boy activity? Yeah. yeah. Well, my mom, she's a weird lady, but uh, I think she might've, struggled with something like gender dysphoria because the gender roles were way more heavily enforced with her because it was just her mom raising her. She didn't have anybody who let her really wear like pants and things like that until she was much older. Um, So I think she internalized a lot of stuff like that and still feels those things. 
Um, and I've talked to her about my gender dysphoria before. And she has like mixed feelings. She's actually like a huge TRA and like pro Jazz Jennings and like <laughs> pro at all of that stuff. And was like, I know that feeling. So I completely understand and that sort of thing. But then I'm like, but then like with me though, we weren't, <laughs> she's like, well, that's different because I didn't want you to like go through that stuff. And that just wasn't, it just wasn't right for you. And it wasn't, it's like, okay. <laughs> like I, I kind of agree with you because that's the ultimate like outcome in a taking, but like there was a possibility that I would have transitioned and I don't feel like you would have been comfortable with that. And she wouldn't have been, she's told me that. And, um, I don't know like what her, her whole thing was, but she, she did believe in like the gendered brains and all that stuff and being born in the wrong body and, and things like that. So it's, it's almost like it's okay for other people's kids, but not my kids, mm-hmm. kind of a, a, a feeling. And so I've talked to her about everything that like yeah. even I've learned from, from being in this discourse and um, she's changed her opinions a lot. Like, so she, she did have like a weird, like that feeling of like, oh, everybody who has gender dysphoria is gay actually. And everybody who has gender dysphoria is, you know, male brained or female brained, like the opposite brain, like all that stuff. And I was like, no, that's not true. So she's a very, <laughs> she's a very accepting, she thinks she's very accepting of, of, of transition <laughs> and transness but has a very yeah. kind of simplistic understanding of it is that right okay and yeah. then you have this very in-depth nuanced take on it yeah. all and, okay. <laughs> okay. yeah so I, I recently broke her out of that mindset where it was like yeah no that's all just misconceptions it's not true um it's interesting though too because she also would say things like trans women are women, trans men are men, but then also say like, oh, but I wouldn't want my, my child to date one. And, um, (laughs) it's actually funny, like Mars and my sister, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go ahead and say, I don't know if you'd be comfortable with it, but they flirt a lot. And it's really (laughs) funny. (laughs) So, um, my mom knows that Mars is trans. And I was like, yep, you might have a, a trans son in mama. And my mom's like, no. <laughs> like, mortified. Like, because <laughs> she's, she's like, your sister's not gay, Cynthia. I'm like, well, she, I mean, you know, Mars is very she believes, masculine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and my sister doesn't like kids. So I'm like, so there's no reason really for there to be like a problem with it. And uh, yeah, my mom just was not comfortable with it. And it's, it's, it's awful, but my sister and I thought it was so funny because it, it just goes to prove like it's all just lip service until it like comes down to brass tacks and there's like, you know, stakes involved when, you know, it wouldn't affect her life at all whatsoever for my sister to date someone who was trans, but that's often how people are, yeah. I think. I mean, do you think, uh, how, how do you think she, in terms of her worldview um, as Jehovah's Witness, how, how do you think she's fitting what it means to be trans into that worldview in a way that, because it sounds like she's not 
she's she's uncomfortable with gay and lesbians mm-hmm. because that's not fitting into the <clears throat> into the worldview but she somehow is able to fit her concept of transness anyway into her worldview how, how do you think she's able to do that I think it, it's because of that idea that oh well you were really supposed to be male or female that you were the opposite you were born the opposite so just inside you're really that person um I think she now sees it as oh you're just very distressed because you were not born that way so I think that's more how she rationalizes it is that person is very distressed and they they are doing things to alleviate that distress. So I think that's probably how she she sees it. Although I don't I don't really know like what that church's stance is on things. They things like that. They are very traditional. Um and they are really weird when it comes to medical stuff, like blood transfusions mm, and right. things like that. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it seems like transition would, would even jive less um, in yeah. the Jehovah's Witness framework. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, she she isn't as into it um, as she was when she was younger. Um, my sister is nine years younger than me, so when my sister was two, she got diagnosed with leukemia and she needed transfusions and things like that. So my mom essentially became excommunicated at that point because she, she gave my sister um, all the transfusions and the, the bone marrow um, transplants and things like that. Um, but she still holds on to a lot of those weird beliefs. So, yeah. Um She's, she's so complicated. Like some days I, she'll say something that really just will make me so upset because it's so insensitive and so awful. And then other days she's like, I love you. You're great. Like, so (sighs) it's a weird relationship. It really is. How many siblings do you have? I have two. Okay. Um, and like, uh, our dad was very like abusive more so to me than, than to them. But I think because of our whole family environment, like I came out with the gender dysphoria, my sister um, came out with a really severe eating disorder. She had, she's bulimic for years. Um, It wasn't until she was like 18. I think her bulimia started when she was like 10. Um, That she finally like stopped the purging and everything. And then my brother started having like gender dysphoria type feelings around puberty to the point where he was telling us that he wanted to cut off his penis and that he hated being male and like just really, really like a lot of self-directed like hate um, regarding his, his biological sex. And um, that was kind of like my, my moment where I was like, I can help. <laughs> like, I know how to help you. So um, just being there and being able to relate so strongly really helped. And so he, he's what, 16 now? Yeah. He turned 17 January. Um, he has like tossed all of that out. Like the, he'll, he'll joke sometimes now he's like, Oh, 
if I were a girl, I wouldn't have to shave my face or like if I were, you know, a girl, I could do this and that. But I mean, he knows he can like wear any of my clothes anytime or anything like that. I don't, he lives with me. So I don't have any rules regarding um, gender stereotypes or clothing or anything like that, obviously. Um, but yeah, he, he had his issues with that too. So I think it just has to be the way we were raised definitely played into like self-image. So. You're the oldest? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So he was born when I was 15. So. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Huge, huge age gap. Yep. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, they, they were living with my family after I'd gone and um, they became very paranoid after I left home about them leaving home. So it was a lot more of the sheltering and the, oh, they can't, you know, go to school and they can't like be around other people because that might influence them and they might leave. And the other thing was, um, because of my sister's cancer, they also became super paranoid about germs. So they became mildly agoraphobic because of that. And then when my brother was around one, he was in his walker and he pulled on the rice cooker cord and got pretty severely burned on his leg from, from that. And, um, they were like, oh, we can't send him to school because somebody might see his scars on his leg and ask questions and, and we can't have that. So we're just going to keep him home because of that. And it was just always some kind of like weird reason to, to keep them home and keep them sheltered. And so both of them had a lot of like anxiety issues and um, like a lot of like fear with normal household things like cooking or um, if water was too hot or like, Oh, well, I don't want to like my brother had this like petrifying fear that like, if he was cooking, that the stove was going to explode and, um, like kill him basically. So since he's been living with me, he went from having panic attacks multiple times a week to not having any. And now he cooks for himself. He showers by himself like he does everything himself and like doesn't need anybody like nearby like he he would shower by himself but he would he would need you to know so like in case I fall or in case this happens like he was just always panicked that something was gonna happen that was like deadly so um yeah they've they've gotten so much better with, with that stuff and they're getting like normalcy and like independence back so so you basically take care of your siblings is that right okay okay i homeschooled my sister all the way through high school and i'm doing the same with my brother now too so because they they didn't go to school my family did not educate them they just assumed that they would just learn things and i was like that's not how that works (laughs) so um, wow yeah, so I'm currently prepping him for the GED, so that's fun. <laughs> wow. Uh, but yeah, so I took over everything. Like, even long distance from California, I was doing everything for them. Like, they needed vitamins, they needed clothes, they needed somebody to talk to at 4 a.m. Like, I was there. Like, they never had to worry about what I went through where I had nobody. So... 
yeah, like they're good. <laughs> they're good now. <laughs> Getting better all the time. So, yeah. So in terms of your um, dysphoria, so you said that, you know, there, there was a point where you made the decision, you know, I'm not going to medicalize that. I mean, did, did you, did, at one point, did you consider that as an option? And, and how did you yeah. arrive at, at a decision not to do that? So I knew transition as an option because of the daytime talk shows. And um, I had also wanted to go to medical school. I ended up not being able to because I have a nerve disorder from a head injury I suffered as a kid that at the time was causing like partial paralysis and like a lot of pain and things like that. Um, but I've done therapy for that and I got better. So no worries there. Um, but at the time I didn't have that therapy and stuff. So I wasn't able to go through that, but I was watching a lot of videos about different surgeries and I ran across SRS and I ran across like information on like the medical facts on HRT and everything. So it wasn't just the, the, I guess like the public service announcements about, you know, hormones and SRS being like so safe and totally reversible and just, yeah, great. And no negative side effects. Like there was none of that for me. It was all just like straight medical stuff. Um, and that's kind of when I realized like, oh, I don't know that that would help me at all because like, it's not going to make me taller. It's not going to make me, um, really have like any kind of a, a phallic experience that would satisfy like what I was experiencing with the phantom phallus sensation. It's like, there's no guarantee that that would take that away. And it would drive me nuts if I went through all that and I still had that feeling and I still went through all that, like, oh my gosh, I think I'd tear my hair out. Like, um, and then the, the fact that I did already have the nerve issues and things like that, I was like, I don't know that HRT would be a good idea given like what I, I already experienced. And so it was just kind of, again, that feeling of like, so I'm stuck like this then. Like I'm, I'm 4'11". I have a very high pitched voice. I have a very female figure more so after, um, I did hormone therapy in the form of birth control for endometriosis and PMDD. So that ended up giving me even more of a feminine figure now. Um, so just, yeah, I, I, I would have never passed. I would have looked like <laughs> a funny looking 13 year old boy, like for a long time. Um, so it was just, yeah, that feeling of like, okay, so I'm stuck like this, like, and I already had issues at that point of, um, dissociation and self-loathing and all that, because at that point in my life. I'd been going through sexual abuse for a few years. So it was that kind of like complete detachment from my body. Like, I, I don't care about this thing. I don't care what happens to it. I, I just don't care. Like, that's, that's it. Um, and it wasn't until I was 
in my 20s that I decided to just do something about it. And that was the, the photo therapy that I've learned about as a, as a kid from daytime talk shows. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, none of our experiences are identical. So I just, but I did just kind of want to explore a little bit about mm-hmm. the way, some of the ways in which we experience this differently. And, and one of the things you mentioned is, it sounds like when you were considering medicalization, you're pretty clear headed about that, it sounds like, like, it sounds like you were able to really think it through and weigh all, all of the risks yeah. and benefits and, and, and think it all through, like, well, what would it be like to be, a, you know, a short a short man, right? Or what would yeah. it be like to be this or this? I don't remember really thinking that clearly about it. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's not that I didn't, it's not that I didn't weigh any of it. I, I did. And, I, and it's not that my physician didn't educate me about some of the risks and stuff. But I, I think by then I was so captured by this idea. This uh, It was almost like a compulsion. That's like, mm-hmm. but I mean, I'm also five foot nine and Mm. So I had some of that going for me, but I don't remember even yeah. thinking of that as a factor. Like, is my height going to affect my passability? I, I didn't even, Yeah. I, I think I was just so captured by the idea that I could do this and that somehow that was going to resolve some of this for me. Um, I don't know what, what that was like for, for you, Erin, at, at the point where you were deciding on whether you wanted to medicalize or not, like how, how much were you able to really kind of process what that would really be like for you, like 20 years in or 10 years in. Yeah. So, so I did, I did have a lot of those same, the same things that uh, uh, you guys are both talking about where I, I did think about my physicality and, and how well I would pass as a man based on my, you know, based on my actual body structure. And I have a fairly, um, you know, I like narrow hips, you know, the, like things that, you know, I'm, I'm five, six, you know, I know I'm going to always be a little bit short for men, you know, like for a man, but not, not, <laughs> not, not out, like not clockable on account of my height or whatever. But I mean, there were a lot of, pro- like, a lot of thoughts I put into one thing I talk about a lot is how freaking tiny my hands are. And that was always a concern. It was like, no matter, no matter how masculinized, you know, my face is, it's like anybody pays too much you know attention. That's going to, you know, that, that was, that was a, a serious insecurity I had. I've, I've gotten over it considerably but um but yeah th- there were little things that I kind of weighed out but um uh but yeah again I think I think if I were uh, in your position as well Cynthia I, if I were 511 and you know had like a more uh, you know a more fem- I probably would have come to the same conclusion it's like this just mm-hmm. this will not achieve what I'm after and so yeah 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 it's like my best bet was like oh I might end up looking like Danny DeVito yeah, and it does sound. It does sound like your dysphoria is quite body based, right? It's very mm-hmm. much about your physical body and less so right. about the the external world, right? Or, or like kind of right. social interaction. Where's yeah. mine? I'd say mine was more more social, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like I, I have really understanding, like a really understanding group of guy friends, honestly, who were so cool about it when I told them. Um, they did stupid things like instead of referring to my my breasts like boobs or anything they called them chesticles and like were super nice and accommodating and treated me like one of the guys and honestly like I got rejected a lot romantically by males because they saw me as one of the guys they thought I'd be gay to date me so it's very much that like you hear that all the time, like with teenagers, like, oh, so validating. It was very validating for me at the time. So I get that. 
I was a little bit delusional though at the time because like I'm clearly female like very clearly and like realistically it was just these guys wanted a feminine personality I guess a more feminine personality I've been okay with becoming more feminine in in how I talk and stand and things like that which again you hear that all the time like oh am I like standing right am I talking right is are my mannerisms too feminine or too masculine like you hear that all the time with from people with gender dysphoria Mm -hmm. and that was something I thought about at the time like you, you kind of taught yourself to me. be to to behave like yeah, a woman. Is was, that what you mean? Okay. Like it was, it was not really like taught myself. It's just like I I let myself relax into Whoa. what came naturally in my personality instead of trying to mimic or mirror what I was experiencing like socially with boys. And I'm unclear. <laughs> if that's necessarily like a conscious decision I was making to like be more masculine or if it was just mimicry and mirroring because I had experienced abuse like growing up and things like that. And you, you also see that a lot in, in people who were abused, like they can adapt to certain social situations and kind of just kind of blend in to succeed a little better. Like, Oh, I'm, and I, I very much did that. Like I was this person with this social group and I was this person with that social group. I was in theater and they had a completely different perception of me than I had at home or, um, that I had with just the, just the fellas. Like I was totally different, um, from group to group and very few people ever got to see me genuinely just be myself. And so part of becoming an adult for me and and leaving that environment was just like giving myself the space to figure out like just me, like who was the whole person and like allowing myself to be that whole person with other people. It's a really Um, important point because I I mean, I, um, I agree that I think one of the saving graces for me was that I, I did have a very rich life. I had lots of friends. I had lots of hobbies. Mm-hmm. There's lots of things that I enjoyed doing that um, were a part of my identity, right? So my whole identity wasn't based on on my body or, or the dysphoria. I had lots yeah. of other things to build my identity around. Um, but, you know, in terms of, yeah, my, my dysphoria was, wasn't really about my body that I read that I, I mean it became that later but as a kid it, I don't think it was it if it I mean I did have some body issues more that because I was had a very in, um, androgynous appearance I, I my testosterone levels were always high because of my DSD mm-hmm. um, but I was a very very tall skinny kid but very androgynous appearing. Mm-hmm. And I was always a lot taller than the other kids. Like I was in kindergarten, I was probably about almost two feet taller, maybe a foot and a half taller than all the other wow. kids. And, and, and a bean pole, like really, really skinny. Like, <laughs> like, like someone just, you know, took me by the feet and, the uh-huh. head and stretched me. But my, my dad was the same. And, and so my dad had to express, mm-hmm. you know, when he was a boy, he always felt really embarrassed that he was that really tall, skinny mm-hmm. kid. Cause boys always want to be, you know, kind of buff and, yeah, and, and that more masculine appearance. So we both had a very similar body shape. It's interesting that we talk about our childhood body anxieties in a very similar way that mm-hmm. I always hated that I was such a, a tall, skinny kid because mm-hmm. that didn't fit 
that that didn't fit the more masculine appearance, but I never looked really yeah. looked feminine either. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I wouldn't say that I really warred with my body much as, as a kid, it was more that people would say, well, you walk like a boy, you talk like a boy, you, you do things mm-hmm. that boys do. It was, it was far more yeah. just social and mannerisms. I don't remember ever trying to mm-hmm. act masculine. It wasn't, yeah. every, it wasn't a posturing that where I tried to, you know, you know play boy it it just sort of came naturally to me and people were clocking me as there's just something masculine and boyish Mm -hmm. about you and and they just treated me like one of the boys as as a kid so it was it didn't become a problem with my body until later because when you hit puberty it's like the social dynamics and the rules changed socially that that I couldn't just be one of the boys anymore because now the boys are all you know full of hormones and they're just chasing after the girls Mm -hmm. because their hormones are are crazy and the the girls Mm -hmm. are kind of doing something similar so it's like well now where do I fit socially yeah when they're all dating and and playing spin the bottle and stuff and and I you know I'm same-sex attracted (laughs) and 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 boyish and I so I, I I do think this probably would have gone differently for me and I, I there's no way of knowing for sure right like we, we kind of mm-hmm. do guess, guesswork yeah. in hindsight but I do think this might have gone different for me if I had been able to engage in some of those t- normal teenage rituals like spin the bottle or whatever as myself with maybe mm-hmm. other same-sex attracted people but in yeah. my world it's like well I just don't there's no framework in this world mm-hmm. for me to figure out where, how do I fit with these peers? And, and so I just, that's when it became about my body because then I blamed my body for not being able to participate yeah. in the normal mm-hmm. teenage developmental stuff. Mm-hmm. So different, so it's, it's thing- interesting. It manifests differently in each of us, right? That mm-hmm. is what this thing yeah, that we call gender yes. dysphoria. Go ahead, well, Darren, I, sorry. I did, um, I don't know if you guys experienced this, but um, like, so once I, once I realized that I was a girl and that there were, and that, you know, basically that it was inappropriate to behave like a boy, which as of behaving like a boy, I mean, that's what came naturally to me. That's when I, when I, um, uh, (laughs) I started observing girls very closely. Something you said, Cynthia, uh, reminded me of this, but I, I would watch girls, like watch the way that they walked, the way that they sat, the way that they spoke Mm -hmm. and try to imitate them. Like I tried Mm -hmm. to, I tried to perform, uh, you know, what it was to be a girl. And I remember being, uh, like almost like an anthropologist is how I (laughs) was like Mm -hmm. looking at, yeah. uh, I feel like a lot of people talk about like yeah. you know, trying to perform, like you're, you're, you're transitioning. And so you, and I, I guess I did do that too, as an adult, when I, um, when I decided to transition, I did then, um, you know, make a, make that kind of concerted effort. I mean, obviously masculinity mm-hmm. just came much more naturally to me, but once I decided to transition, I did again, start being like, okay, let me, let me make sure that I'm doing the things that the, you know, that the men are doing uh, very similarly <laughs> to, yeah. to what I, what I had done as a kid when I was looking at girls and trying to figure out how yeah. to be one, you know? know um, yeah yeah I don't know if like yeah. uh, well I just it I could it was so weird girls seemed to understand there was something off about me I don't know what it was but I would try to make friends with girls throughout childhood into like high school and things like that and nope just completely shut out like most girls completely shut me out right away And I really don't know what it was they were sensing or what, but I was not passing whatever social checks that were going on subconsciously. Boys accepted me right away. Not a problem. Um, It was harder after puberty because 
there were physical differences that obviously like, you know, they noticed and hormones and things like that. And like, oh, boys liking girls and all of that played into it. But I was still able to just slip in after puberty with boys socially so much easier and get along with them and do all the same things and play all the same games and have all the same interests. Super, super easy. Um, but with girls just never really got that connection. If I did get a friend that was a girl, it was usually like girls that were social outcasts because they, you know, were kind of weird or a nerd or whatever. Um, or, you know, heaven forbid a vegetarian and, (laughs) 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 um, so a lot of my, my social interactions with girls were with girls who were, you know, curious about their sexuality and that sort of thing. So, which was fine for me. Cause I was like, Hey, I'm same sex attracted. So that works. But you can be my girlfriend. Sure. And um, so, uh, yeah, it was never a thing though, where I felt like I, I could fit in with girls ever. And even now that that's still, um, is a factor for me. That's an issue where I, I'm paranoid about that. When I start talking to women, I'm like, Oh God, is she going to like be okay? Like, is she going to reject me? Like, I, I hope this is, am I doing girl right? Like, <laughs> yeah when really I should just be comfortable and like a sensible adult is either going to be friends with you or they're not like they don't think about that kind of stuff. But because we were conscious of that, like that might be like on somebody with gender dysphoria's mind, like how another adult might view them or interact with them socially. And, and, you know, no one who doesn't have that is thinking about that. And it's kind of stupid that like we see trans activists all the time, like being like, you need to be like, unlearning all of this and this to make people with gender dysphoria feel more comfortable. It's like, you know, maybe we should just learn <laughs> so that everybody is not constantly thinking that way. It's actually very liberating to come to that realization, like that everybody is not constantly trying to clock you or reject you or whatever. Like, geez, it's awful to constantly be thinking that way. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not very good for your your mental well being. That's that's no. Sure. But I also wonder, like, how much of of what, like, with the stuff that you were describing. I mean, I think it's a very common experience for a lot of people. Like, um, so much of of what we kind of classify as gender dysphoria, as well, is basically almost like a social anxiety to a certain mm-hmm. extent. You know, and yeah. I think that's that's um that's a really universal experience for a lot of people. You know, body issues aside, you know, and and that's that's another thing that um. Uh, we we do is we kind we kind of um, uh, you know lump a lot of things under the, under the banner of, of trans now and mm-hmm. lump a lot of things under the banner. I mean, obviously, what you described, I I'm not saying you 100. That's so super generous for you, like what you experienced as a kid. As I'm not, but I just mean like I think so much of what people experience as far as like social anxieties and things like that that we now go, oh, that's gender dysphoria. You should transition. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's kind of yeah. like oh, these are just pretty pretty universal. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I don't know. I feel like I might have like, you know, they say like, oh, well, a certain amount of kids like grow out of it. I think I might have grown out of it for the most part in my early teens, um, you know, like around 12, 13, when I started being able to find girls that I, I was able to be friends with and, and kind of be okay with where I was socially. But, um, 
around that age is where like sexual abuse for me started. So I think that kind of hammered in any kind of like discomfort and, and hatred that I had of being female, like that, that detachment from that, that like wanting to escape from it and resurfaced a lot of those like early childhood feelings too. Um, I think part of it might've been maybe a security blanket or some kind of like escapism maybe too. Um, so yeah, I think that it, it was not helped by it at all. Like there was, there was, it, it just got so much worse at that point. And um, yeah. So the gender dysphoria, if I'm understanding correctly, so you're saying the gender dysphoria pre-existed the sexual abuse. Uh-huh. Yes. But you think the sexual abuse maybe prevented the gender dysphoria from resolving? <laughs> I do. Okay. I think just looking back at that time before sexual abuse started, I was like pretty okay with like, um, you know, gender roles and that sort of thing. And I was pretty okay with being referred to as a girl or as female or, you know, talking about the uh, female body, reproductive health, like all of that. I was okay with it. I was becoming like good with it. Even I would say, um, and like wanting to kind of explore femininity and, and that sort of thing with these female friends I was making. But um, after it was just like, nope, like that it was just shut down, like just so hard. I, I probably like, it was like a feminist term, but I, I definitely feel like I, I internalized misogyny at that point because I just had so much like hatred for what it meant to be female at that point. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Like in terms of just, I'm cause I've been trying to, to understand, you know, what is gender dysphoria and, and I mean, there are different kinds, but um, you know, when we're, when we're kids, where they're you know, three or five or whatever, and we're, and we're trying to figure out, you know, what is a boy and what is a girl it's mm-hmm. we base at an early age, we base that categorization on a different set of things than we do as adults. Like if you talk to, to adults, what, what is a male and what is a female? They're going to talk maybe about chromosomes or, or genitalia, right? In terms yeah. of our, our reproductive role. But that's not what kids are thinking, right? A two-year-old no. or three-year-old when they're trying to figure out their world, that, that's not how they're conceptualizing boys and girls. No. So it starts off um, really based on stereotypes. Like what, uh, what cues mm-hmm. am I seeing, right? I'm boys yeah. look a certain way, girls look away a certain way, boys act a certain way, right? So we're, it's based on, you know, what the feminists might call sex stereotypes, but there mm-hmm. is some biological basis for those behavioral yeah. differences and, and, and physical differences. Mm-hmm. So we're basically, we're div- dividing up these categories on one set of things. And as we get older, we're always adding information to those categorizations, right? And, and, it's really not until we understand sexuality that we finally realize what the difference between males and females is. Because mm-hmm. that our biological role is kind of it. That's the only reason yeah. that there would be any biological difference between males and females. Yeah. And, and usually that realization, um, as, as our sexuality wakes up, we figure that out, that our bodies are about reproduction. 
that that we start to resolve that so whether that whether that's being gay and it's like okay well now I understand these feelings are about being gay and and then you yeah you know right so your your understanding of sexuality and and gender matures at that point but if there's something that interferes with that process like why would it be that at the point of of sexual realization and and the understanding of reproduction why for some of us that resolves and for some of us that solidifies this experience of gender dysphoria totally makes sense in your case that an experience of of being harmed sexually would prevent right the the consolidation of the gender dysphoria in relation to your own sex body i mean that that makes total sense to me if we're willing to understand and be honest about what gender dysphoria is yeah and um I mean, my grandmother, when I was really little, would often tell me like, and that was part of, of the, the gender dysphoria when I was little, which I, I came to not really pay mind to as I got older and had friends who were male, but she would always tell me like, men are always going to try to grab your body and they're always going to try to like violate you. So you have to protect your body. You have to like guard yourself like really vigilantly. And, um, I was like, really? Like men are going to try to grab me? And she's like, yes, even, even family members who are male could, could do that. So you never want to be alone with a male and you never want to do this and that. And I was confused. She was probably probably pretty badly abused. I I, I think she might have been, I don't think she'll ever tell me. Um, I think one time she might have tried to, but I could tell it was really, really upsetting her, whatever it was she was going to tell me. So I, I told her she didn't have to, and she didn't say anything. So yeah, that was something that she taught me from a very early age. Like, and it, you know, it was after the the feelings of gender dysphoria had started, but it was, um, it was something she told me like almost every day was just like, you know, make sure nobody, like nobody's grabbed you. Like you're, you know, like for a while, like she was very like hardcore about that. And it's kind of sort of what prompted me to like, look at my genitals for the first time. (laughs) Cause I was like, what are they grabbing? Like, there's nothing there. Like I didn't really know like what that looked like. Everything's kind of like inside. You can't just like look down and see what's happening there typically. So I took a look and I uh, lost it. Like I just started screaming in the bathroom, like crying because it repulsed me so much, like to see what was there. And it just, it, it looked horrifying to me. And my mom came in, she was like hugging me and like trying to like console me. And I was like, this, I'm going to have this forever. Like, why would anybody want to grab this? This is horrible. It's disgusting. Like, so um, then my grandmother comes in about, I don't know, 15 minutes into my, my panic attack about it and goes, if you think that's bad, just wait until you get your period. And then they explain periods to me. And that was like horrific. Um, so, but yeah, I was already like repulsed by it. I was already like horrified by that. And then I did go through precocious puberty. Like I started developing breasts and body hair and all of that before I was like nine. And then, um, when I was 10 was when I got my period for the first time, my mom like reacted by, so <laughs> I pulled my underwear down and I called her in. Cause I was like terrified and she reacted by like looking at it 
and then looking at me and then running away. <laughs> like she called a whole bunch single- of traumatic experiences. Yes. Okay. She, she proceeded to call every single one of my family members to tell them that I got my period. And that's how I found out like, Oh, that's what that is. was because I overheard her on the phone and like, I was just kind of left to take care of it on my own. I mean, really. So. And did yeah. she seem, did she seem panicked about it or like concerned or. I think she was excited, but it was just kind of like, she was very emotional about it. So I, I think she was excited. I'm not really sure, but I've talked to her about that. And she's like, I'm sorry. I just, I, I got kind of freaked out because you were so young. And so I was calling everybody. <laughs> um. Yeah, I remember it was a, the moon was red. I think it's like a harvest moon or something. So I thought it was like the moon had done something to me for a while because it was so little, like, right, you right. know. Um, so yeah, it was just like a lot of me figuring stuff out on my own. I, I realized early on, I could not depend on adults to give me any credible information, which, you know, did more harm than good later down the line. But um. Yeah, it was just a lot of, and then my grandmother telling me that all men just wanted to grab me and all that other stuff. And then having all male friends, I was like, well, you're full of shit. Like men are great. Like <laughs> boys never want to do that stuff to me. They're like, you know, my friends, there's that one boy when I was really little because I was trying to look at my dress, but other than that, like, <laughs> and I actually had the opposite experience. The only time anybody had ever tried to be gropey or anything was a girl in second grade and she was always like you know grabbing at my t-shirt and trying to like kiss me and stuff like that and so yeah I hadn't experienced anything like that from a boy it says like yeah girls are trouble but boys are great (laughs) and it sounds like all of the the sort of um the fears or concerns that you had about your body and as it as it was developing it sounds like that was almost confirmed by the women in your family right like if you're if you're mm-hmm. saying oh this is disgusting and your family members like well yeah it is and wait until you have your period I mean it kind of yeah I would think that that would sort of confirm and reinforce that well all women all all women feel this way about their bodies and and feel this yeah, kind of disgust and discomfort yeah and they would also tell me that if I didn't wash it every day that worms were gonna grow in it Jesus which, Christ. yes <laughs> that yeah no she will still say that to people like to children yes my grandmother will still tell kids that like well, if you don't wash yourself every day worms are going to grow out of it like yeah horrifying so <laughs> i'm thinking i have this disgusting like organ on my body that feels like an alien already and now it can grow worms if i'm not like maintaining it properly wow. like so never heard that yeah. one before. I, I know that I know that generation kind of likes to scare people into yeah. behaving certain ways, but that, I haven't heard that one before. Yeah, so just a lot of like really awful things. But you know, I'm I am same sex attracted, and I'm, I've never been repulsed by anybody else's vagina. And as a kid, like you know, my mom would shower with me until I. I got my period and then I, I was a woman now. So I had to shower for myself. Um, but I mean, they, they had like, they were very bushy there. So I didn't see a whole lot, but it didn't disgust me ever 
being a kid and, and seeing that or being around it. It wasn't other people that disgusted me. It was just mine. Like, I don't know if it was like a, a body dysmorphia thing where I just saw it differently. I think it probably was. Um, also, I, it seems like at an early yeah. age, you kind of had a classification haywiring, right? Where you assumed you were male. And so yeah. I wonder if that kind of- uh, It could of, be, which would line up with the phantom phallus feelings. Right, um, right. So I don't know. And maybe it was just that like in my brain, like this is not supposed to be here. <laughs> like, so yeah, it was just, yeah, it's horrifying. But everybody else was like, that's cool. You have a vagina and that's great. Like, good job. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, even the fact that she wouldn't shower with you anymore. I mean, I guess there's different ways that you could have interpreted that. And, and, and I get it like, cause I mean, I've got teenagers too, and your relationship does have to change with them once they become a certain age or whatever, but, but it's also could be interpreted at, at, from as a child. Cause you were pretty young when, mm-hmm. when your period started. So I could see that from a child's point of view, being a loss of connection that this has happened yeah. to my body and this is so disgusting that my mom doesn't even want to see me naked anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you could have, I don't know if you did interpret it that way, but you mm-hmm. could have interpreted it as almost like a punishment of I'm losing this, this intimate connection with my, my mm-hmm. family members because my body has changed in this way. Yeah. Well, it, it did feel like growing up and like becoming a woman was a punishment. Like there was nothing good about this. Like it, it did not come with any positives in my opinion. I was not like the idea of childbirth was horrifying to me. It's not really anymore. Like it, it's still sometimes when I'm in that headspace, I can still kind of be like, Oh my God, that's like horrific. But, um, for the most part, it, it, it's gone. But at the time it was just like existential terror. Um, and periods were awful. And like, now I was going to develop a female body, which I didn't want that either. So, and then because I started puberty so early, um, I'd always been kind of a tall kid. And then when I started, I stopped growing. So I, my last significant growth or anything happened when I was 11 and I never grew from then on. So it was just like, yeah, it was just all negative. I didn't see any positives with it. And I I knew I had an understanding that males were taller, stronger, faster, like all these things. And that sucks. Like I was a very active kid and I loved roughhousing with boys and stuff. It's like, that's over. Like they're going to kick my ass. Like just that that feeling so I made up for it though with um like when I was with boys and things like that I I had a very big personality so I became intimidating just in the way I behaved and I learned that was like good enough so that that became less distressing from that perspective and then you still have dysphoria dysphoria feelings now as an adult at all or like it sounds like you do like what I've seen you say on Twitter and whatnot is like you you do and you kind of manage it in a different way um how do you how do you how do you deal like mentally deal with that so the worst of it now like I will still have the phantom phallus feelings occasionally I will still have the existential dread like this is it forever um and the like kind of occasional lamenting about like 
my body and things like that. And the best way to, and it, it does also come with guilt too. Like, how can I feel this way? I'm healthy for the most part, like with the exception of the endometriosis and the PMDD, like I'm pretty healthy person. I am not like hideous. So, I mean, there's that going for me too. Like I, I should be happy. I should be fine with, with what I look like again and all that. So it comes with that guilt too. Like how, how can I, you know, be so resentful of this thing? And, um, yeah, the best way to deal with it is just to try and like break out of that negative cycle of thoughts, because it just, it, it does become very much that downward spiral and you can get very, very depressed and, and focusing on like all of these things that can never be. So you just really have to break and be like, it it just can't happen. Like, that's it. Stop. Like you just have to just be that like person to shake yourself out of it and be like, stop, that's enough. Like, that's it. Like move on. Like there, there are other people that have to deal with horrible things and like, you're over here upset over this, like really just like, you're great. You're healthy. You're happy. Like, just stop. There's no reason for you to, to do this to yourself. And that's honestly the, <laughs> the best way that I can, I can break myself out of it now. I couldn't really do that before because it was just constant, like dissociation. Like, I don't want this though. Like, I don't care that I have, you know, the health that I have or the body that I have. I don't want it. Like I hate it. Um, and then like a lot of the therapy I did was just about like that self-love and self-nurturing and taking care of yourself and seeing that and understanding that you are more than your body. Like you are a person and you can affect positive change in others and positive change in yourself and things like that. So. So you said you learned about a type of therapy um, using photographs. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? So that I learned from a daytime talk show, (laughs) but uh, yeah, it was about um, body dysmorphia and anorexia. And it was, they were talking about phototherapy as a means of accepting your body and seeing what's there realistically, because a a lot of the issues that I had, especially as a teenager was not seeing my body realistically. And that like, just seeing it as disgusting, like just, there was nothing else. It was just revulsion. Um, And the way I got around that as a teenager to cope with it was objectification of myself and, and seeing like only value in it for how other people saw it. Um, so, and that came with, I think the, the sexual abuse, like a lot of people, a lot of females seem to do that when they, they are sexually abused, like they objectify themselves and that sort of thing, see value in their body that way. Um, so that's something I did for a long time. And then I eventually was like, no, like, that's awful. Like I need to stop doing this to myself. And then, um, I had been following this photographer who did underwater photos and he lived in California. And I was like, I wonder if 
it would help me in the way that it helped those women in that talk show years ago that I saw to do the photos. And so he lived nearby. So I took a chance. I messaged him and it turns out, luckily enough, he essentially was doing that for the women in the photos. I had no idea because he doesn't talk about it publicly, but the women he worked with were, um, women who had postpartum depression and were not happy with how they looked after having baby women that were coming out of the BDSM community that had body issues, um, women with eating disorders, things like that, that were helped so much by these photos. And, um, I was like, wow, this is perfect. So I explained my issue and it was one photo in particular that I, I saw this woman and she had a more masculine body, slender, but you know, muscular and more like just not as feminine, not as curvy and that sort of thing. And it's like, can you like do this for me? Because maybe if I, if I saw myself this way, I'd be okay with my body. And he was very honest with me. He's like, I can never make you look like that because that's not how you look, but I can show you what you do look like. And I think, I think you're going to be like, okay, once I, I do that for you. And so I went and I was so nervous. I was like shaking like the whole time I was in the water because you're naked with this stranger basically. And, um, Oh gosh, I was shivering so bad. My mouth was like so itchy. I was like, am I even to be able to like hold my breath under the water? Like it's awful. Um, but I, I did it and, um, I became more relaxed over time and he was very kind and very understanding the whole time. And afterwards we looked at the pictures and it was like kind of immediate that feeling of like, Whoa, these are amazing. Like, I didn't know that I looked that way, really. Like I'd seen photos of myself, but you're always so predisposed to like kind of judging your own pictures and photos of you with family and things like that. But this is different. This was just me against a, a black background. And I guess the, the way the water works in the photos, it like softens you. And it was just a really like healing experience to see that that first time and to be like, Oh, wow. Okay. So I guess it's like what other people see then. And it's not hideous and like, it's kind of nice. And it was, it became kind of addictive to like go and take these pictures. And I was like sketching poses for the next time, like sending them to him and getting like really excited and meeting the other women and working with them. And, um, I was getting better at holding my breath and, and working with all the props and everything. And cause it like, he would, he had props and costumes and everything else you could wear under there. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was great. Like he even did photos like of my vagina and things like that, like that are just photos of that, like close up to like help me see it as not disgusting and revolting. And um, yeah, it was just like, oh, like that's hmm. like now the only thing I really have an issue with when it comes to that is like, I still can't um, 
like self-penetrate most of the time or anything like if a doctor needs me to do it or something I'm like can we not actually <laughs> be great if we just didn't um which then I have to explain everything to them and they don't quite understand and then they start like asking like well are you are you okay with like she her pronouns or <laughs> like yes I'm fine with that like it's just I really just don't want to do that that's it like everything else could say the same. We don't have to go there. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very healing. All the women were so sweet and, um, yeah, he, he really did amazing things with that. And that helped a ton with being able to see my body as mine and not be so hard on it all the time. So um, yeah. And then after that I did hypnotherapy for a completely different reason, actually. Um, I had a really bad reaction to a supplement and I was like really paranoid and afraid of water suddenly, which was a problem because of the underwater photos. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I started doing the hypnotherapy for that. And I was like, okay, I trust this therapist. So I'm going to open up about this the gender stuff. And it was a lot of like inner child work and just that like healing and loving and nurturing of like the self. So I've had a TRA or two say that I went through conversion therapy when it's like, you don't even know what my therapies were or like what it meant for me. Like, how can you say that? Like, that's so flippant and rude. And it's like, and there's nothing to convert. It was like, what was already there? Like I'm accepting what's already there. Like what? So, um, oh. it's not, it's, it's it's a, so yeah, I don't get the sense that, that the clinicians that you saw were trying to force you to be something that you're no. not, but you, your goal, it sounds like going into therapy was to accept yourself in your body as it yeah. is. Just stopping that like hate and that disgust was so important and, and being forgiving, like, I had um, held on to so much anger and like resentment because of like all the sexual abuse and everything else, like internalizing that and like putting it on me. And a lot of that hypnotherapy and things was just to just let that go and love myself and be forgiving and afford myself that same forgiveness that I would afford anybody else, like, and that same understanding that I would afford anybody else. Yeah, it was a very healing, amazing <laughs> experience. I highly recommend both of those things. Like if you can find people that are trustworthy in those, those fields, like do it. Like it is hard right now to find a therapist who is going to do those things for you, especially if you're, you say you have gender dysphoria, it suddenly becomes, what are your pronouns? And everything relates to gender dysphoria and we're just going to focus on that and how maybe changing your pronouns or the way you dress or the way you present or how others address you is going to somehow magically make all this stuff disappear. And it, it, that's not what it's about. It's so much that internal journey and that healing and that, that self acceptance, whether you transition or not, it's, it's so important to have that acceptance. And to find that, that stopping point, to find that point at which you can just be at peace with it. Mm -hmm. um, 
Blair White said in a video once that you have to think about like all the way to the grave, like from, from start to finish, like mm-hmm. what's going to make you happy. And yeah, I agree. Like that is how you and how you have to think of things like how can I be happy all the way up until my final moments like what's what really matters to me what's what's really going to make my life better so and yeah. it really it really uh it is well put um it, and it really highlights for me the, the importance of not of like it's not a one-size-fits-all approach because we do experience dysphoria in different ways like I don't think the, that mm-hmm. the water photography um, type of therapy would have been very helpful for me. I, I don't like, I, I think I would have probably re- reacted to that differently than, than you did, but for you, it was very helpful maybe because you were experiencing a lot of that body dysmorphia, mm-hmm. right? That, that, and I wouldn't say that I experienced body dysmorphia in the, in the same way. So, so I don't know mm-hmm. that that would have had the same impact on me, but it, I think it does require, you know, some sensitivity to where a person's really at and what exactly are they struggling yeah. with and, and what are their goals and, and being for that person in that, in an authentic way, uh, rather than yeah. saying, well, this is, this is, this is the treatment model and we're just going to kind of rubber stamp everybody through it. Yeah. Like Aaron, how, how do you think? How do you think, Aaron, you would have experienced that that um, photography exercise? Would that have been helpful for you, or or not? No, yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't have been. Um, uh, it's hard to even put myself uh, to imagine, um, just because. Yeah, I don't even know how to answer that. Just, I um, I. sorry sorry it's okay, it's okay if you don't it's okay if you don't I just thought maybe you had had a certain initial reaction to it but I think for me it wouldn't have been helpful because I never thought that my body was repulsive in any way so somebody mm-hmm. just pointing out well you know your body is you know reasonably assembled in a way that it should yeah. be and then I, so I so I would have looked at the photos as like well yeah I mean that's that's a nice photo and, and you framed it nicely and and I can I can mm-hmm. appreciate that I'm not like deformed or anything, but it just, but it, it, I still wouldn't have been satisfied because it was, it would still not look like a male body. And that would have Mm -hmm. bothered me. I'm able to look back on photos of myself now and, and, uh, you know, kind of appreciate and not feel, not recoil in the same way that I used to. Um, But I think I, so I think back then having myself photographed in that way, I would have just recoiled. Uh, mm. and, and and not because I thought it was ugly, but just because it just didn't feel like right. it was my body. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah thanks so much for, for talking. Yeah, thanks so much for <laughs> yeah. talking to us, Cynthia. I've, I've really mm. appreciated just getting to know you a little bit and hearing your story and yeah. and how you've, you know, the different steps you've taken um, to resolve this for yourself and, and just feel... Mm-hmm more comfortable. So thanks so much for, for being willing to, yeah. to talk to us and just open that, that up. It's a very personal story. And yeah, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for joining us for this episode of the transparency podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like, or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.